Amen. Oh, so thankful for our worship team bringing the energy in the dog days of summer when people are traveling and they're, they're leading us in worship. So thankful for the opportunity to follow that. Man, I'm so grateful that you guys are here. If you would, go ahead and grab a Bible. Turn with me in it to Genesis chapter 22. If you didn't bring a Bible, we always have them available for you on the way into the worship space. Find it on your phone, however you need. Figure out how to find a Bible so you can follow along as we make our way through God's Word. If you're joining us for the first time or the first time in the last few weeks, we are in a summer series that is allowing us to look at some of our favorite stories from God's Word. These are the stories that we grew up with. If you grew up in church, if you ever attended a week of vacation Bible school or summer camp, if you've ever driven by a church or own a children's Bible, these are some of the, our favorite stories we think about when we think about God's Word. Stories like Adam and Eve, Noah and the Ark, David and Goliath, Jonah and the Great Big Fish. Today, the story of Abraham. But if you're joining us for the first time or the first time in a while, we aren't just looking at these stories in the same old way. This summer, we are looking to find Jesus in our favorite stories. And one of the things that we have seen is that Jesus has been there all along, just sometimes we either didn't know it or we overlooked it. For example, uh, before we go any further, Happy Father's Day. Happy Father's Day. I want to wish all the dads a Happy Father's Day. Thank you, Justice. Thank you. Um, I, didn't, I did not know Father's Day was this weekend until Friday. And I guess I should have known it. It was hindsight. It was on the Google calendar. I should have seen it. But Carissa asked me after work on Friday. She said, hey, Adam, what do you want to do this weekend? I thought, this is kind of special. She never asks me what I want to do this weekend. I always just wait to be told what we're going to do this weekend. So I thought about it. I was like, well, we've got some chores around the house I'd like to get done on Saturday. I definitely would like to smoke some meat on the Traeger and then spend some time with you girls. And she's like, that's what you want to do this weekend? I said, yeah. She said, that's what you want to do for Father's Day? That's what we do every weekend. And I was like, Father's Day? When's Father's Day? She said, Saturday. And, I, and it hit me. I was like, man, Father's Day is this Saturday? I was like, no way. So I opened the calendar. Sunday, sorry. We celebrated on Saturday because Sundays are kind of busy. Anyway, uh, I looked on the calendar. Sure enough, there it was the whole time. Father's Day today. So happy Father's Day to all the dads. But sometimes if we're not careful, if we're not paying attention, we can overlook the things that are right there in front of us, things that have been there all along. And I think when we look at some of these familiar stories, we can get like in the routine of going through the day, going through the week, reading the story over and over and over again, and we can fail to see Jesus where he's always been. The truth is Jesus has been in these stories all along. We, didn't just, we just didn't see him. Jesus is the point of these stories, and these stories point to Jesus. So uh, if you have your Bibles, Genesis chapter 22, we're going to follow along with the story of Abraham and Isaac. We're going to get up to a slow start, but then we're going to speed up. Reagan said she has to get all the way to Lakeland to celebrate Father's Day, so we're going to make this quick this Sunday. But chapter 22, verse 1, starts this way, after these things. All right, we'll speed it up in a minute. So what does that mean? After these things, what are the things that the writer is talking about in Genesis chapter 22, verse 1? Well, the things he's talking about is all of Abraham's life. Now, we're going to save some time. So we're not going to look back. This covers 10 chapters of the Bible. So we're just going to think through very quickly. What was Abraham's life like? What were some of the highlights and the lowlights of Abraham's life? Well, first of all, when we first meet Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, he is a well-to-do guy living in a well-to-do region. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, seemingly, God calls him to leave his home and go to the place that God would show him. 
Why did God choose Abraham? Because God is sovereign. We don't know. It doesn't seem like there's anything special to set Abraham apart, but nonetheless, God chooses Abraham, and Abraham answers the call of God. Abraham packs up everything and everyone he has. He leaves everything he knows, and he follows God, which is a miracle in itself, isn't it? Because I can't get my two-year-old daughter to go with me unless I tell her where we're going and why we're going there. Every soon as I say, hey, hey, baby, let's go for a ride. She goes, why, where are we going? Why are we going? It's like, you're two years old. What difference does it make? You don't know if we're leaving the neighborhood or driving out of state. But nonetheless, Abraham just, without any further warning, he just follows God where God leads. In tremendous faith. He packed up everything, put his faith in God. Still the whole time, even as he's in faith following God, he wrestles with letting God take the lead. He's constantly trying to take control of his circumstances. He's trying to honor God, but staying control at the same time. Twice on this journey, he passes through a foreign country and he tells the king of that country that Sarah, his wife, isn't really his wife. Apparently she was so good looking that he thought the king would see her, want her, and kill Abraham to get her. So he just basically says, Sarah, when we go through Egypt and when we go through these other countries, just tell him you're my sister. If he wants you, then he'll take you. Can you imagine the conversations in Abraham's home after those encounters? Probably not very good. But God promises Abraham nonetheless that he's going to have a son uh, in his old age. And so Abraham and Sarah, they delight in God's promise and they try for about 10 years and no son comes. And so they take, again, take matters again into their own hands and Sarah gives Abraham permission to sleep with her servant. He thinks about it for just a few minutes and he sleeps with her servant and has a son. Um, nonetheless, even when Abraham is faithless, God is faithful. And there's so much packed into the story. But have you ever noticed that the faith, faith, our faithlessness never nullifies the faithfulness of God? I feel like every time I come to God in my prayer time, I can recount times that I've been faithless, that I've wandered, that I've lost my focus on the things that matter most. And God it remains faithful. God promises Abraham that he would have a son. And sure enough, about 25 years or so after the promise was made, when Abraham is 100 years old. God finally gives him the son that he had promised. And Abraham and Sarah, they're so overwhelmed, uh, they can't help but laugh. And so that's what they name their son, laughter. The Hebrew word is Isaac. And that's where we pick up the story in Genesis chapter 22, verse 1. After these things, after all of these things that God has accomplished in Abraham's life, after God has called Abraham and after Abraham has followed faithfully at times and struggled at other times, we could preach an entire sermon series. But nonetheless, we pick up at the high point of Abraham's life, Genesis chapter 22, verse 1. After all of these things, it says, God tested Abraham and he said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. I think it's interesting here that as the story starts, God is speaking to Abraham. Now, we don't know how God speaks, and I think that's intentional, because if we knew how God speaks, we would spend all of our time thinking about how God speaks instead of focusing on the one who is speaking. The point here is as soon as the story starts, and all through Abraham's life, God is constantly speaking to Abraham. It's like Abraham's whole life, he'd been training for this moment to hear his father's voice. My question before we even dive into the text for today is, are you putting yourself in position to hear God when he speaks to you? Now, we may not have like a burning bush moment or a mountaintop moment like Moses and Abraham where God speaks in this loud audible voice. He may not descend on your residence in a cloud, but God certainly still speaks. We know that because the writer of Hebrews in the New Testament would think back on this story and stories like it in Hebrews chapter 11 verse 1, or sorry, chapter 1 verse 1 he would say this. He would say long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Like we look back through the Old Testament we see God speaks loud, he speaks audibly, he speaks through the prophets. 
But the writer of Hebrews goes on, he says, but in these last days, meaning these days, the days of the New Testament church, God has spoken to us by his son, Jesus, whom he appointed the heir of all things through whom he created the world. And what the writer of Hebrews is saying is like, we read these stories from the Old Testament, these favorite Bible stories, stories like Adam and Eve and Noah and the ark and Moses and Abraham and Jonah and the great fish and all these stories that we like to celebrate. And we see in these stories that God speaks to his people. And we think, man, wouldn't it be cool if God would speak to us? You ever feel like that? Like God spoke to Abraham. Now, if you read the rest of the story, you don't like what God has to say. But at this point, we see God speaking to Abraham. And we think that would be so cool. I would love for God to speak to me. The writer of Hebrews says God does speak. In fact, he spoke so clearly through his son. God, the creator of the universe, who is infinite beyond our ability to understand, because he wanted to be known by his people, sent his son in the form of a man, take on the likeness of man so that we could know our God. We can look through his word. We can see his story. We can hear the still small voice of the Holy Spirit leading us and guiding us as we keep in step with him. And while we may not have these mountaintop moments like Abraham, certainly God is still speaking and leading his people. Here as God speaks to Abraham, it says God spoke to Abraham and he tested him. Which makes me wonder, like, why did God feel the need to test Abraham? I mean, I understand initially Right? Initially, when he called Abraham, he wanted to test him, but he's already tested him so many times. God called Abraham and he first told him to leave the land he grew up in, to leave his hometown, to take everything and everyone he had accumulated, but to leave everything he knew. And Abraham, it says he believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham passed the test. Then he traveled through distant countries and was faithful pretty much to God. Then God promised that he would give him a son and, and Abraham struggled for a little bit, but at the end of the day, he put his faith in God and he believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. It seemed like Abraham had passed many, many tests. So why here at the end of Abraham's life does God feel the need to test Abraham again? Have you ever felt like the closer you follow God, the more often it seems like God tests you? Or like the, the closer you get to God, the more difficult life seems to be? Has that ever been part of your story? And we wonder why. Well, the obvious answer in some part is Satan loves to stand in the way of God's people drawing near to God. Satan is an enemy who despises us, he deceives us, and he's constantly trying to stand in the way. So some of it is just living in the, some of the struggles we face are just living in the fallout of a sinful world. Some of it are Satan and his forces intentionally intervening in our life. But sometimes it is God who tests us. I mean, right here we see it says, after these things, God tested Abraham. God was the one who tests him. Why? Why does God test us? Why can't we just put our faith in God and God calls it good? No one ever told me this, but I think there was a part of me that thought as a young kid growing up in church that when I put my faith in God, everything would at least be generally up and to the right. I mean, there may be some dips along the way, but it wouldn't be like, you know, Bitcoin that was up high and then down low and then up high. It was like generally moving up and to the right. And I, and I certainly still thought the closer I walked with God, the less complicated life would get. At least I would have some clarity about the direction that God was leading. But it seems that the closer we walk with God, sometimes the more complicated life seems to be, the more difficult days lie ahead. Now, here's the thing. When we put our faith in God, our salvation is secure, right? When we, have we can have confidence that as long as we remain in Christ, Christ remains in us. But as we follow Christ, he tests us why? To develop and strengthen our faith. 
Because faith is a lot like a muscle that we use to follow God. The only way our muscles get stronger is when they've spent time under tension. Like, I've learned this lesson. Like, as I, as I try to get in shape, it, you can have all of the equipment in the world. You can have a, a home gym set up. But unless you go and spend time in the gym, put the muscles under tension, they don't get stronger. God's testing is time under tension for our faith. What lies on the other side of our testing is ultimately a stronger faith and a stronger relationship with God. James, who was the brother of Jesus, I mean, if it were going to go well for anybody, it would be Jesus' own brother, said this in his letter to the church, count it all joy, my brothers. Count it all joy, my brothers, Christians, fellow Christ followers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Now, depending on the translation you have, that word steadfastness can be translated a variety of different things, steadfastness, patience, endurance. What it's trying to communicate in the original language is just a patient dependence on God, a trust in him. So James says, count it all joy, my brothers, fellow Christians, when you meet trials and difficulties of various kinds, whatever that looks like in your life, for you know that the testing of your faith, it produces a greater dependence on God, a stronger faith muscle that can allow you to follow God more closely. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And what James is saying to the church is when you go through trials, when you go through relational struggles, when you go through health problems, when you lose a loved one, when you try to follow God and people have turned their back on you, ridiculed you, persecuted you, all kinds of trials, when it tests your faith, it's actually building your faith. And the more time under tension, the more time your faith spends under tension, the stronger it gets. And the more we watch God follow through faithfully on one trial, the greater and the closer we'll follow him on the next trial. So that's what's taking place here in Genesis chapter 22, verse 1. After these things, God tested Abraham. And he said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. God calls him by name. He said, take your son, verse 2, take your son, your only son. If you have your Bible, go ahead and circle that. Your only son. That's going to come up a few times, and we'll come back to it at the end. Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I shall tell you. Now, why in the world, of all the things that God would choose to do to test Abraham, would he choose to ask him to sacrifice his son? Like, I am just as shocked reading this as you are when you hear it, because we can't fathom a good and gracious God, the giver of life, asking a man who's following him to sacrifice the life of his child. Now, we're reading this in the 21st century, and we're appalled, but in, the, in, in Abraham's day, a few thousand years before Jesus, child sacrifices were all the norm. All of the gods required child sacrifices. So there could be this element where God is saying, if you really love me, will you will love me every bit as much as you love the former gods you worshiped before I called you. Now, we've read the end of the story. We know that God does not let Abraham sacrifice Isaac. He had no interest in watching Abraham kill his son, but he needed to see, or he wanted Abraham to see it more than, he wanted Abraham to see if he loved God more than the things he loved most in life. And the only way for Abraham to know for sure that his faith was that strong was to put it to work. James, the, James, the brother of Jesus, another passage would say, faith without works is dead. God knew Abraham's faith, but he wanted Abraham to see his faith. And so he says, you are to bring your son, your only son, whom you love, the one you love, the one you've waited for a hundred years, bring him and sacrifice him on the mountain I'm going to show you. 
Verse 3, so Abraham rose early in the morning. He saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac, and he cut the wood for the burnt offering. He arose and he went to the place of which God had told him. Man, this is faith. God, God calls Abraham. Abraham rises early in the morning. If there was ever a morning for Abraham to sleep in, wouldn't it be this morning? But he wakes up first thing in the morning, ready to follow God. I don't know about you. Do you ever delay obedience in order to spend time to pray? I do all the time. And I, I, like, I love spending time with God. It's like one of my favorite things to do. But I will often hear God very clearly. And I will think, I better delay so I can pray to make sure I heard clearly. And like Abraham he rises first thing in the morning. Uh, a few years ago, we were in a season of prayer and fasting. Chris and I, we had no expectation for what God was going to do in the future. And we heard very clearly, abundantly clear, he has called to plant a church. And I know I've shared this story many times, but it's just been uh, on the forefront of my mind. We heard it so clearly. It was, we heard it separately. We came together. God confirmed the call. We spent time with trusted men and women who spent time with Jesus confirming the call. He could not have been more clear. And I spent the next year in a prolonged season of prayer and fasting because I was convinced somewhere along the way I had heard wrong. And I realized towards the end of it, in fact, Carissa realized and told me that I was just delaying. and I wasn't really spending time praying. And therefore, as a church, we always say we want to lean in. We want to hear from God. We want to hear his voice. We want to spend time with him and spend time in his word. Tune our ear to hear the, the still small voice of the Holy Spirit prompting us. But as soon as we hear, we want to be like Abraham. We want to take action because God honors obedience. God honors obedience as he called his people. Abraham rises early in the morning. He goes, he gets everything ready for the sacrifice. Verse 4 says, On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Can you imagine how agonizing every step of that three-day journey was for Abraham? Probably every bit as agonizing as it was to watch, for God to watch Jesus in a tomb. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Now, the language is a little muddied in the English translation, but what Abraham is saying is to the, to the servants who had helped him carry the things for the sacrifice, you guys stay here. I don't really want you to see what's about to take place. I and my son are going to go over and worship. I and my son are going to come back. Which begs the question, did Abraham know something we don't know? Because at this point in the story, all we have heard is God tell Abraham to take his son Isaac and sacrifice him as a burnt offering. Isaac could probably sacrifice many goats and sheep and bulls and turtle doves and God didn't accept cats, but some other animals along the way. Um, and, and none of those sacrifices had ever come back. And so why did Abraham say to the young men, if you guys stay here, we are going to come back to you. The best way to interpret the Bible is to look at other parts of the Bible. Hebrews chapter 11, the great faith chapter, the writer of Hebrews is recounting this time in, in Abraham's life. And he says this, he says, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act and as he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named, he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Here's what is so fascinating. Abraham believed that if he followed God faithfully, God would still fulfill his promise. 
that if God called him to sacrifice Isaac, even though he had more questions than he had answers, even though it would have been an agonizing process to literally put his son on an altar and, and slit his throat and watch him bleed out before he laid him up, that God could bring him back to life because God had made a promise in the past to Abraham that he was going to build a nation through Isaac. And if God was going to follow through and fulfill that promise, he believed that God could raise Isaac from the dead. And that he and Isaac would come back to meet the men who had come with him. Now, here's the thing. That is faith. Because Abraham didn't know as much about God as we know. Abraham met God 12 chapters into our Bible. He had 12. He didn't have a Bible. But he had 12 chapters of history. We have an entire Bible. We have the person and the work of Jesus. Here's what it shows me about faith. That faith is more about who we know than what we know. Because a lot of us can know a lot of things about God, and we should. God has made himself known to his people. He's given us scripture. He's given us nature. He's given us science. He's given us everything that points to him who is the truth. But it's, we can know a lot about God and still not have faith in God. One of the greatest convictions that has been taking shape in my life over the last few years is faith comes from time spent with God. Faith comes from time spent with God. We can know a lot about God. We can know everything there is to know about God and still not have faith in God. Faith comes from who we know, not what we know. Abraham knew very little about God, but he had spent time with God. And so he had faith in God. Verse 6, And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering, and he laid it on Isaac his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife, so they went both of them together. It's this incredible picture. Abraham and Isaac, they leave the, servant, the servants who had come with him. They take the items for the sacrifice off the donkeys. Abraham literally takes the wood that they're going to use for the burnt offering. It's bundled up, and he puts it on the back of Isaac, his son, who carries it up the mountain. Think about that. We'll come back to it in a few minutes. I don't know why, but it was always, in my mind, Isaac was always just a young little boy. Uh, certainly, we don't know how old he was. He certainly wasn't 40, but... Uh, as the latest theology group discussed for a whole evening. Um, but nonetheless, he was strong enough to carry the wood up the mountain. I would suspect he's probably a teenager because the whole time he's carrying the wood up the mountain with his dad, he's asking his dad a bunch of questions. Verse 7 says, And Isaac said to his father, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold, the fire in the wood but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And they're going up the mountain and Isaac is looking at all the things. He's been with his dad before and he's watched him offer sacrifices and they've got the, the coals to start the fire and they've got the knife and he's carrying the wood. The stones are up there to be arranged into an altar and he looks around, there's no, no lamb for the sacrifice. And you think Isaac is just saying, dad, you're getting old. You're 120, 100, whatever years, 30 years old. You forgot the lamb. You forgot the most important part. Abraham said in verse eight, God will provide himself for himself, the lamb, for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. When they came to the place which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac as son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. It's interesting to see that Isaac let him, willingly let himself be put, be tied to the wood for the sacrifice. Certainly, if he was old enough to carry the wood up the mountain, he would have been old enough to resist his hundred-and-something-year-old father, or at the very least run away from him. But he let himself be tied to the altar because he trusted his father. Then Abraham reached out his hand. He took the knife to slaughter his son. Verse 11, But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. Abraham said, or the angel said, Do not lay your hand on the boy. Do not 
or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. It's this incredible story. Like, this is one of our favorite stories. It's one of my favorite stories. The stories that we grew up with, that Abraham had such tremendous faith. And when I was learning the story growing up, for the most part, I don't know if it was from time constraints or this is just a happy ending, this is where the story ended. Has that ever been your story? Like you heard about Abraham going up the altar and it's like, just, he's got Abraham, he's got, I'm sorry, he's got Isaac tied down there and he raises the knife in the cartoon show just in the nick of time before Abraham nicks, Isaac, nicks Isaac's throat. Uh, the angel of God appears and he says, Abraham, Abraham. And, he, and Abraham stops and the angel of the Lord applauds Abraham and everyone applauds Abraham's faith. And that's where we stopped. And the application was always this. The application question was always, what are you willing to give up for God? Like you ever like you sit around the campfire at, at uh, summer camp and they teach this story and they get to the point and they're like, well, what are you willing to give up? For God, And that's a good point. It's a valid question. It's a very valid application. But I, it kind of left me with this impression of God, that God is this God who's looking down at all the good things, all the things that we love most, thinking about taking them away from us. Like, well, I, Abraham really loved Isaac, and, and God was looking down, you know, I'm going to take Isaac from Abraham. And I started thinking about all the things that I really love most. And in my mind, I thought, like, well, I know God is sovereign. I know he knows everything. He's omnipotent, all-powerful, all those things. But, like, I kind of hope he doesn't, I'm not going to think think the answer because I don't want him to know because then he might take from me the things I, I really want. And the more I've grown in my faith and the more time I've spent with God, I, I realize like God is a good and gracious heavenly father. And I, I've only been a father for two years, but I hate taking things from my little girl. First of all, because it turns into a whole ordeal, right? Like stop running with scissors, give them to me. Why daddy? Why? It's just a whole thing. But I will often, I love giving her things. And often, Chris will say, you've got to stop giving stuff to her. You'll ruin her. Um, nonetheless, I hate taking things. But often, I will ask her to give me things that I know will hurt her. A few weeks ago, Carissa was out of town. And uh, I confess this to you in the safety of many witnesses because I haven't yet told her. So Brighton and I were in the garage. We were cleaning up the... It's, we had a small garage, so we kind of got a home gym set up, and it gets kind of cluttered. I was putting all my fishing stuff away from a f fishing trip a, a week or so before, and uh, I look over, and Brighton's just being a sweet little girl, and I look over, and sh I hear something shaking, and I look over, and she's got this big, green, shiny fishing lure, and she's just shaking it. These two little silver treble hooks just, like, waving, and I, like, I try not to panic because I've been on the receiving end of some of those treble hooks more times than I'd like to remember. And I said, hey, Brian, can you bring me that death trap you're holding? I was like, oh, what do you tell her? Bring me that fishing lure. She's like, no, daddy, it's my toy. And I was like, this is not your toy. Like, you don't know yet the pain it will cause, but I've got seven scars on my body to show you. And some I can't show you from sitting on one of these things. You cannot play with this. It will cause immense pain. And sure enough, because She's a good little girl who loves her dad. She brought me the treble hook, or the, the, the fishing lure, and I took it safely from her. But I started thinking about that exchange, and I realized I think a lot of times that's what God is doing. He's asking us to examine the things that are ultimately going to hurt us and asking if we will love him more. Now, Isaac wasn't going to hurt Abraham, but if, if parents make an idol out of their kids, if they elevate them to a place of worship in their life and top priority over God, it will not only hurt their kids, it will hurt them. 
And maybe it's God asking you to examine the idols in your life. Are there things in your life that you have misprioritized? Things that you love me with a lot of your life, but there are a few things you're holding on to that I'm not trying to take them from you because I want to rob you of joy and goodness. I'm taking them from you because you haven't yet felt the hook, but it's going to hurt if you do. Nothing wrong with having an incredibly successful career, but if you put career as the pinnacle of your life, it will ultimately fail you. Someone told me not too long ago, you can, uh, this isn't true of my career, no one gives you anything at the end of it, but uh, you can spend 40 years working for a company and they give you a handshake and a gold watch on the way out the door. And just like kind of resonated with me. Like, man, people sell their souls for their career. 15 minutes after they're gone, they're replaced by someone who works harder, who's younger, who they pay less, right? Maybe it's uh, not a relationship, but a desire for a relationship. And you're just like, that's the most important thing in your life. And God is just saying, love me more and trust me that I will take care of the rest. God tested Abraham, not because he needed to see his faith, but Abraham needed to see his faith. Abraham needed to know that he loved God more than anything else. And then no matter what took place, God was ultimately looking out for his glory and Abraham's good. But that's not where the story ends. And we're going to end this very quickly, but I want to read the rest of the story. If you have your Bibles, it's in verse 13. I've highlighted this entire section in my scripture. It says this. It says, And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by the horns. And Abraham went and he took the ram and he offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. Now, this is just kind of a nuanced thing. We take it for granted when we read this story. But where did that ram come from? Like, you think they walked by it and just ignored it on the way up the mountain, or did God miraculously provide it in this moment? Now, I've been, in fact, I quit hunting. I love to go hunting, but I'm so bad at it. Like, I've never seen a deer with his 12-point rack stuck in the thickets just waiting for me to come up and kill it, ever. Like, all the times, all the time I've spent in the woods, this is a miracle. God provided a ram for the sacrifice. And Abraham went and he took the ram, the end of verse 13, he'd offered up, if you have your Bible, circle this, as a burnt offering instead of his son. The ram was a substitute for the sacrifice of Isaac. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Verse 15, and the angel of the Lord called Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself, I have sworn, declares the Lord. Because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven, as the sand is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. He's just reiterating the promise that he had made in the past that Abraham would have an incredibly large lineage. Verse 18, and in your offspring, meaning from among your family that would become as a result of your obedience, and in your offspring... Through Isaac shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because they have obeyed, because you have obeyed my voice. What God, the angel of the Lord, is telling Abraham, whether Abraham realized it or not in this moment, is that Jesus was going to come through his offspring. That Isaac, whose life was spared on that mountain, would father a son named Jacob and Jacob and Joseph, and that the nation would grow out of Abraham's descendants. And from that nation would come Jesus. And through Jesus, all the earth would be blessed. And sometimes I think God's, though we don't have these mountaintop moments, these burning bush moments, God speaks more clearly because we can see the rest of the story. We can see God faithfully following through on all of his promises. And then we can look back and we can see Jesus is all in this story, isn't he?
Abraham was called to give his son, his only son, Jesus, the only son of God. He put, his, he put the wood for the sacrifice on Isaac. And Isaac carried the wood that he was going to be sacrificed on up the mountain. Jesus, in short order, would carry a cross up Golgotha to be sacrificed for us. And then just like Isaac let himself be tied down by his father, Jesus let himself be nailed to a cross. And then there in the thicket, a ram whose horns were caught in the thorns. Jesus would let a crown of thorns be put on his head. And then Jesus, as the ram was sacrificed, instead of his son, Jesus, the son, would be sacrificed instead of us. That Jesus is all through this story. I've read this story more times than I can count. I'm just beginning to see clearly that Jesus is here. He's been here all along. I just missed it. I didn't realize it. But the more I see it, the more I stand in awe of God. Religious leaders all through the New Testament missed it too. John chapter 3, Jesus is meeting with a man named Nicodemus, who's a well-educated leader of the Pharisees. Nicodemus had the Old Testament memorized forwards and backwards, but he sees Jesus doing something that he didn't have explanation for. And so he comes to Jesus one night and he begins asking him a bunch of questions. And Jesus answers the questions and he, and he points them. He points, he points Nicodemus to the truth that he is the fulfillment of the promise. Nicodemus doesn't get it. And so uh, Jesus is saying, do you remember Nicodemus, the story about Moses, the hero of the faith, when uh, everyone was snake bitten and he lifted up the snake in the desert. Everyone who looked on the snake would be healed. And he's like, yeah, I remember. And he says, the son of man must be lifted up. I was in that story. And then perhaps the most famous passage in all of scripture, Jesus says to Nicodemus, for God so loved the world that he gave his, and the Greek word is only son, but in Hebrew, it would have triggered Nicodemus to think of this story, his only son, where Abraham was called to give his only son. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but the world might be saved through him. And I have to wonder if in that moment, Nicodemus' eyes were open. I wonder if in this moment, God is taking a story that is so familiar and reminding us of the goodness of God. That when we believe in him, the, the, the better translation for believe is really trust. When we put our trust in him, that we will be saved. If you've never put your faith in Jesus, if you never trusted him, his sacrifice was made on your behalf. But my guess is many of us have put our trust in Jesus. The question I ask as we continue to make our way through this story is are we continuing to trust in him? Are we continuing to evaluate the things in our life that may be harmful to us, whether we realize it or not yet? Are we continuing to, to bring those things to God and say, God, I love you more. And though I don't see clearly and though I don't understand, I trust that you're faithful to follow through on all of your promises. On the other side of the trial, lays a greater commitment and trust in you. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for your goodness and grace. And what a privilege it is that we can gather together as your people to to make much of you. Father, our goal this morning is to make much of you in the songs that we sing and the scripture that we study and the communion elements that we celebrate and the songs that continue to reflect your glory. Father, our prayer is that as we read these familiar stories, you would bring to the forefront of our mind that you sent your son Jesus to die on a cross for us. So no matter where we find ourselves in our faith journey, whether we're just trying to figure it out for the first time or we're trying to figure it out again, Father, whether we've been faithfully following you or we're struggling, Lord, I pray that today as we think about how good and gracious you are, that it would increase our faith. 
But just like Nicodemus, as Jesus quotes these words and puts himself in the story, Lord, that we might stand in awe of you. Fathers, we make much of you. Make yourself known to us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing.